Welcome to Jaffa's Space, a podcast about the world of Jewish outdoor food, farming, and environmental education, or as we like to call it, Jaffe. In this four-part series with Rabbi Yedidya Sinclair, we explore connections between Talmudic teachings and our current climate crisis. Time to coincide with Sukkot, Rabbi Sinclair takes us on an incredible journey through ancient Jewish wisdom with modern implications. This series is sponsored by the Hazon dance troupe, the Lulav Shakers. Returning from their virtual world tour, we are thrilled to be channeling their energy through today's podcast. Feel free to grab your finest etrog and join us in congratulating the team as each shake brings them closer to God. For this series, we'd like to offer some framing. Sukkot ends each year with a prayer for rain. Talmud Tractate, Ta'anit, begins by asking what happens and what we should do if the rain doesn't come. The acute crisis of COVID-19 against the backdrop of the creeping challenge of a warming climate are shaking our sense of invulnerability to the natural world. And they are challenging our society's capacities to effectively respond. We need deeper sources of wisdom to orient ourselves to these challenges. Jewish wisdom about coping with a climactic crisis and plague is distilled in Tractate Ta'anit, which addresses how we should respond when a change in the weather threatens our lives and livelihoods. As different as our reality is from the Talmuds, both the rabbis and contemporary environmentalists converge on the view that dangerous disruption to the weather requires a response that touches our lifestyles, behaviors, and spiritual consciousness. In these four consecutive lectures, Rabbi Yadija Sinclair argues that people respond to existential danger from the weather through shifts in behavior and consciousness that reverberate across the divide, separating pre-modern and post-modern awareness. Through exploring these places of mutual resonance between the Talmud's world and our own, we will frame a new old theology of climate change that offers hope to overcome this critical challenge. We will now begin part three of our conversation with Rabbi Sinclair. So sit back, grab a cup of tea, and join us. Expressions in New York City of what the public space can accomplish that private space cannot. And so I'm especially happy to welcome everybody back today. As you know, and many of you have been here before, Kazan for a long time has been trying to figure out how do we enable and catalyze the Jewish community to work seriously to create a more sustainable world for everybody. There are all sorts of practical things that need to be involved in that, but it is also vitally necessary that we engage the deep part of Jewish tradition, both to figure out what wisdom it may have for unique circumstances that we face today to figure how to inspire us, ourselves, shape ourselves and challenge ourselves to rise to fresh challenges with potentially ancient wisdom. And so with that, for the third day, I welcome you. And I turn to my Sinclair, who is learned and distinguished, had a significant private sector career, has been a solar entrepreneur, has orthodox me and comes to us from Jerusalem to talk not only about the climate crisis in Jewish tradition, but what we learned from COVID. Yadidia, over to you. Thank you very much, Nigel. Uh, and thank you to Liana and Hannah uh, from Khazan for all their help and for putting this together. And thanks very much, everybody, for, uh, for joining us. Um, I read a lovely, uh, a lovely 
from uh, Rabbi Dov Linzer from Yeshiva Chovei Torah, the Rosh Hashiva. And, and you know, he talks about how the sukkah, you know, is always about, it's about leaving our stable world for the unstable world of the sukkah. It's leave your dirat keva, your fixed dwelling, and go to your dirat arai, your temporary dwelling. And, you know, and then he always understood that, he says, as, you know, you understand during sukkot that, you know, actual, you know, actual security doesn't come from your home or your job or whatever. Comes from you know, comes from God, and so you go out, and then you come back to your stable world afterwards with that uh, with that knowledge. But this year, he says it's a bit different because you know we're not really going back to our stable world afterwards. You know, our, our world is not as stable uh, as we thought it was, and and so this year the sukkah has extra extra meanings to it. And he talks about how the sukkah, you know, love is 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 built a lot of the halakha hot of the sukkah, like you can use two walls and a bit of another wall if it doesn't quite reach the wall, it's okay. It's sort of improvisation and, and living creatively to make the best of, make the best of the what materials that, the, the, that, we, that we have. So, you know, I really hope that, that this year, you know, everybody from get, can, is able to draw from uh, Sukkot uh, the faith and strength that they need, that we need, to live in an uncertain world with uh, with courage. I want to really thank everybody for uh, for the amazing comments and chats that you know that came in during the uh, during the last couple of uh, talks. Um, I'm I'm not really able to keep up with reading them while during the talks. Still less replying to them all. But I did read them all afterwards, and those were very very interesting and thought provoking. And and and, and thank you, and keep them coming. Um, I wanted to really, uh, Golden uh, put in, um, which really gets to the heart of, uh, of what's going on in the Sechet Tani. And Rav Zelik said, you know, what about the whole thing going on in Tani about, you know, ritual and prayer and waving the lulav and simchas beis and there were all of what you might call the theurgical aspects of, of Masechet Tani. The rituals, which are actually we, you know, they certainly believed in the in 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 the in the in the Talmud, actually make a difference to the world and actually, you know, have some effect on the weather and, and, and the rain. And what do I think about all of that? You know, it's all you know. And I and I would say so. I'd say to Rav Zelig, yes, first of all, um, that is there, and it's true that I haven't I haven't played that up so much. Um, and 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 so thanks for asking the question and sort of and so I can highlight that. Um, I think part of it is that well part of it is that actually there are different voices in the Talmud about this and different layers to it. And in general, the you know the the Eretz Yisrael voices in the Talmud. This is a very important part of what's going on, and clearly it's it's an absolutely real thing that our rituals can affect the weather, literally speaking. But the voices from Bavel uh, tend to see somewhat distanced from that. And, and so trying to translate those into, into more this worldly sort of public policy terms. So, so if, for example, in the bit that we saw yesterday about the Yechidim, the individuals fasting, the, uh, the whole sugya that I brought about well, what effect that has on prices? You know, you might say, well, hang on, that's not, you know, that's not the most, that's not what the fasting was really about. The fasting was about 
trying to uh, trying to bring change in the world, not you know change in the markets. And but the voice who, who which we brought yesterday was Ralph Huna, who is sort of the you know the the this worldly Bavel based voice in Tarnit par excellence, and we'll see that more today. And then the other thing I'd say is, yes, I, I, you know, I believe in this. I, I believe that these things worked and can work, but I'm at the same time not exactly sure what to do with that now. I mean, I, you know, I, I pray and I wave my love and it does whatever it does and I really don't know and I'm open to the, to the fact that that may do something, but I just don't know. Um, and, yeah, I'm, you know, personally a bit wary of, you know, developing new rituals but perhaps we do need to find a way to you know to recover these rituals in our tradition and and reenact them in 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 the area of climate you know what you said your question actually reminded me of something that happened to me in um in 2009 um nigel and, and i were actually at a uh, at a conference in england an interfaith climate and environment conference and uh, and at the end of one of the sessions, they asked me to say some kind of prayer relevant to what was going on for everybody. So I didn't know what to do, and it, but it was shortly after Sukkot. It was the beginning of November. And so I came, I hit on the idea of, well, I'll say a little bit of the prayer for rain, which we say on Shemini Atzeri. And, and with Kavanah, that it should be for the whole world, because a lot of the world was going through drought at that point. Yeah, so I said a little bit of the, of the tefillah, and we sing the niggas, we sang the Hasidic nigun that we sing in some of the shuls here in Israel. And, and there were, you know, African and, and South Asian religious leaders in the room who were really, really, you know, would, would join in with a lot of kavanah, a lot of kavanah, because they were from places where, where it was, you know, it been, you had droughts for a long, long time, and it was really real for them, this prayer for rain. So it's quite a powerful thing, you know, all these different phrasing together saying that Tfilat Hageshem. And so we finished that. And then half an hour later, I kid you not, it started to pour with rain, bucketing down, as Nigel is my witness. That really happened, right? <laughs> and okay, it was, it was England and it was November and it doesn't necessarily take a miracle for it to make it rain in England in, in November. And, you know, and I really don't see myself as a sort of a miracle working honey type rabbi, but you know, but that was that was a powerful thing and it felt it felt like real at the time. So so the answer is yes, it's just totally there in Tarnit. Yes, I believe in it. No, I'm not quite sure what to do with it in my life or what we do with it now, but very open to hearing what other people think about that. So with that, with that introduction. Let's jump into uh, today. So, so actually, just before we jump in today, very briefly, the uh, the story so far. Um, we talked about uh, the core insight of of, uh, of tractate Taanit that the moral and natural universes are one system that we are involved in the weather, and whereas that might have seemed cute, you know, twenty five years ago. Sort of the world of climate change means that that insight is sort of more than cute because because you know what most scientists say today is that we are involved in the weather and that the natural and moral universes in that sense are one system yesterday we talked about the role of uh, of individuals 
we talked about this specific and this distinctive Eretz Yisrael consciousness of vulnerability to the weather, which is deeply, deeply embedded in, uh, in, in, you know, in many aspects of Judaism. And I think we need to, to unbury it. And we talked about how the Talmud, when it talks about you know, people changing and changing their consumption patterns in response to a famine or a crisis, it's always not in utilitarian terms, but out of reasons of integrity and solidarity. And how, how could you live with yourself otherwise if other people are suffering around you? So, so, uh, so that's, that's where we're up to. So today, COVID, climate and connectedness. So look, I acknowledge that it's really hard for many people to think about climate change right now. As you've probably noticed, the world is in the middle of another very serious crisis. People are suffering, people are scared about their health, their jobs, their parents' health, their finances, and also about the sheer levels of political dysfunction in many countries that COVID-19 has ruthlessly exposed. And when a disaster strikes, it's only human nature to worry about the most immediate things especially when that disaster is as bad as COVID-19. And yet we also say that the climate crisis is not waiting politely in line for the COVID crisis to finish up its turn. On the contrary, it seems to be getting noticeably worse. Also, the COVID crisis is giving us a frightening glimpse of our society's vulnerability to severe and unexpected shocks or unexpected to many people how the interconnected systems that we take for granted every day life actually sometimes are alarmingly fragile and the domino effects that a crisis like this can set can and has set in motion you know the a breakout of the virus in a big food production plant can cause empty supermarket shelves on the other side of the country or the lockdown orders can lead to an epidemic of uh, domestic violence we've also seen how unequally this impact has spread across our society and the poor and minorities have generally suffered worse. And conversely, it's also afforded us an insight into where the real sources of resilience lie for individuals and communities and countries. In short, this terrible pandemic has given us, I think, greater understanding about how crises work and what it takes to get through them or not. So rather than put climate on the back burner, so to speak, while we get past COVID, I'm with those people who actually see this as an opportunity to understand better what the climate crisis could mean and how to confront it. Now, it seems to me that Talmud Tanit has a really rich understanding of exactly these things, how crises work and what it takes to get through them. So in the first part of this talk, I want to look at what we can learn from Tanit about resilience to crises in general, including climate disasters and including plague, both of which are explicitly addressed. Well, in the second half of the talk, I want to, to discuss the whole question of interconnectedness, when that, which is something which I think is at the heart of dealing with both climate and COVID, and about which Tani also has a lot to say. So let me point out that for Talmud Tani, climate crisis, when sense of not, rain not coming, and plague are part of a unified framework of response, but with an important difference. So, for example, if we look at the Mishnah in the first chapter of uh, Tani, it's the beginning of your source sheets. Um, uh, I think the sources are available both in a link in the chat and they also sent out earlier and also they should be available in a link if you're watching on Facebook Live. And if, uh, if you can't see them in one of those ways, then 
then then ask me or Hannah um, Leanna and we'll try and sort you out. So, so the Mishnah which we began yesterday, which we read yesterday starts as follows. So it's not raining. If it's the 17th of Maheshvan came about a month from now and no rain fell, individuals began to fast three fasts. They eat and drink after it gets dark and they're permitted to do work, to bathe, to anoint themselves with oil, to wear shoes and to have marital relations. So as we said yesterday, things look bad, but not everybody has woken up to it yet. The individuals who get it start with this, these fasts. And then what happens next, Mishnah goes on, if Rosh Chodesh Kislev came and no rain fell, court ordains upon the community three fasts and they may eat and drink while it gets dark. And it's permissible to work, to, to, to bathe, to anoint oneself with oil, to wear clothes and to have marital relations. Then the Mishnah goes on, if these passed and there was no answer, the court decrees three more fasts on the on the community, they may eat and drink while it's still day. They may not work, uh, bathe, and anoint themselves with oil, wear shoes, or have marital relations. So these more severe restrictions kick in. It becomes an altogether sort of graver and more serious thing. And the bathhouses are closed. And if these passed and there was no answer, the court decrees upon the community a further seven, making a total of 13. These are greater than the first. From these, they blast the chauffeur and they lock the shops. On Monday, the shutters of the shops are opened a little when it gets dark. But on Thursday, they are permitted the whole day because of the Shabbat. So what we see here is that the response to rain not coming is a slow buildup of response of increasing severity. You know, there's a crisis in the weather is inherently slow moving. Right? Things first change and they're a bit abnormal and you're not sure what's going on and then and then day by day, the evidence mounts, and then a few people realize. And then at some point, it becomes, it becomes uh, clear to everybody that you've got a full-blown crisis on your hands. You know, there's a dawning awareness first that the weather's not as it should be, first on the individuals, and then spreading to evolve the whole community as the situation escalates in severity. <coughs> and the response is also slow-moving and escalating in gravity. Um, uh, commensurate with the way in which the onset of the crisis uh, happens. Um, the Mishnah ends actually, now if these pass and there was still no answer, then they restrict engaging in business and planting and uh, building, planting, betrothal and marriage and in greeting one another as if they were people rebuked by God. And then the individuals go back to fasting anew until the end of Nisan. So it's interesting, there's a place, a time at which you know, the, the, the cycle of fasts ends because the community, the broader community has like had as much as it can take and can't really take any more. But the, these individuals, you know, the people who are especially sensitive to the situation, go back to fasting until the end of Nisan, the end of the rainy season. So that's what you might call how a, a climate crisis unfolds slowly over the course of the, of the fall and the winter and early spring in, in Mishnah Tanit. But on the third, third chapter, on the other hand, the Mishnah describes a, an, a very different kind of crisis. So the Mishnah opens there. The order of public fast is the next source mentioned above is enacted because of lack of the first rain. But if the crops have undergone an unusual change, then they sound a blast of alarm immediately. 
Similarly, if the rains have stopped for 40 days between one rainfall and the next, they sound a blast immediately because it's a plague of drought. So in other words, these are crises that are immediate and require response right now. Something really acute and urgent has gone wrong and you can't just wait for this, you know, the crisis to, 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 to evolve. You know that you really need to do something right now. And then the mission continues. Uh, and so too in a city which has a plague or its buildings collapse, that city fasts and they sound a blast, but in those places around it, you don't. Maybe Kiva says they sound the alarm, but don't fast. What constitutes a plague? If in a city that can supply 500 foot soldiers and three deaths occurred on three consecutive days, behold, this constitutes a plague. Less than this is not a plague. So, you know, so not surprisingly to us, uh, a plague is a situation which arouses immediate alarm and requires an immediate response. Uh, and there's a precise statistical epi epidemiological a criterion given for what constitutes a plague which needs this reaction in terms of how many deaths for a population, a city of a population of what sort of size. So these are threats that require a sort of concertinaed and accelerated version of the response that is that happens and unfolds slowly in the first um, in the Mishnah to do with the weather in the first uh, in the first chapter. Now, the Talmud in the third chapter goes on and deals at some length with what makes a society resilient in the face of a crisis. And I would argue that there were three main areas of resilience that the Talmud talks about. And I think, I think they're meant to apply across the board to all of these different kinds of situations, whether plague or drought or weather or, or besieging army or you know, there's, there's th I, would, I would say three areas in which, in which a resilient uh, society needs to respond. One is religious faith and practice expressed through prayer and fasting. Two, acts of, of kindness, generosity, and resilience in individuals. And three, responsible reality-based leadership and public policy. This is that's absolutely an element of the response which the uh, the Talmud respects uh, uh, expects. Now, <coughs> I won't say all that much about the first religious faith and practice. I, um, you know, I we I talked about it in the beginning in response to Zelig's uh, Zelig's question, um, and also because we, I think we're quite. You know, we we quite we're familiar with those parts of Tanit. I mean, I'm not going to bring the Honi Hamagel stories because I, I think probably most people have uh, have learned them before. But obviously, that's what all this is about. You have a an emergency, a drought, and you have you have somebody who's uh, who has this extraordinary ability to bring the rain through uh, through prayer, and he stands in his circle and he prays until the rain comes. And a number of different stories like that in, in Tani. But what, what I will say is very interesting about these stories is that these people who have this ability are often the outsiders. Uh, Honey was a maverick. 
Now, he wasn't part of the religious establishment, and the establishment as represented by Rabbi Shimon ben Shetach were angry with him for what he, for what he did. And many of these characters in, in the third chapter of Tanya who have this amazing ability to connect to the crisis and to beg, ask for mercy for God and to bring relief, they're mavericks and outsiders and they're unknown and people perhaps sometimes think they're a bit weird and they, and yet they have this capacity. And it's, and I think there's something there about how you know, in a society in crisis, establishments and hierarchies sometimes you know, lose their hold and lose their ability to, 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 to manage and to respond. And, and the, those abilities become diffused to unexpected margins of, of society. So that's, that's as much as I'll say about the first, religious faith and practice. Although there's obviously much more to say about this. And we, you know, we, we could talk for a year about all of this. As far as the acts of individuals go, we have in this chapter stories like the following about the kindness and resilience of ordinary people in the face of drought, plague, and other perils. So for example, the next source, the, the, the Gomorrah relates another story involving a plague. Once there was a plague of pestilence in the town of Sura, but in the neighborhood of Rav, there was no pestilence. The people therefore thought this was due to Rav's great merit. However, it was revealed to them in a dream that Rav's merit was too great. And then this matter too small for the merit of Rav to be involved. Rather, it turned out, not sure how they, oh, it was revealed in a dream, that the neighborhood was, stared, was spared due to the acts of kindness of a certain man who would lend his hoe and his shovel to prepare sites for burial. So, so the, what, the neighborhood was, was spared, as it turned out, not due to the merit of a great rabbi, but because of the kindness and the generosity and the neighborliness of this unknown person who lent out his hoe and his shovel for the, the extremely unpleasant task one imagines of, uh, of, of burying victims of the plague. The, the Gemara relates a similar incident. In Drokhar, there was a fire, but in the neighborhood of Rav Huna, there was no fire. People therefore thought this was due to Rav Huna's great merit. It was revealed to them in a dream that this matter was too small for Rav Huna. Rather, it was due to a certain woman who heat her oven and lent it out, lent the use of her oven to her neighbors. In both of these stories, we see how small acts of neighborly kindness help the community avert disaster. Right? And, and, and the stories on the face of it are to be understood in a supernatural sense you know but perhaps we can also understand it in a more in a more this worldly sense as well that it was having people this these people in the neighborhood and taking responsibility for those around them actually helped these communities avert the worst we've all seen throughout the covid epidemic how much small acts make a difference to the resilience of communities we We've all, I'm sure, felt the tendency to focus on our, ourselves or our families, but but you know, but we've seen that those communities and those places with a culture of looking out for your neighbours, doing shopping for elderly people, visiting, calling up people who are on their own, have have, have managed people to help people and help communities get through this much better than places which have a more I don't know, let's say, ruggedly individualistic outlook.
On the next stuff, we find this very famous story that's quoted in many, many places, but out of context. I'm sure everybody's seen it one way or another. Two brothers came to the marketplace. Uh, so Elijah, who Prophet Elijah was paying a visit to the market, marketplace, and he said to Rabbi Baroka, these two people who just came in, they also have a share in the world to come. Rabbi Baroka went over to the men and said to them, what is your occupation? They said to him, we are jesters. We cheer up people who are depressed. Alternatively, when we see two people who have a quarrel between them, we strive to make peace with them. Now, as I said, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely story. And uh, these two people who's, you know, who's, uh, who's, you know, whose main talent is making people laugh are, you know, are the tzaddikim, the hidden tzaddikim in this, uh, in this marketplace. And it's often quoted out of context to say that, well, having a sense of humor and making people laugh and sorting out quarrels is a good thing. And, and for sure, it's a good thing. But I would argue, however, that when we read this story, as I think we're supposed to, in the context of a chapter about resilience in the face of disasters and in the context of our experience in the last six months, it takes on a very, a very you know, different, different and more profound cast. Because based on our experience, wherever we are in the last six months, we understand, I think, A, that having a sense of humor has helped to get through this, and B, that peace inside a community helps, and that a coherent social fabric helps, and conversely, fractiousness and fragmentation and endemic mistrust within a community or inside a country make dealing with a country like this immeasurable, immeasurably harder. I, boy, do we know this. I can say it from where I'm sitting. I think you can probably see it from most of where most of you are sitting as well. So you know, these are, I think, some, some, you know, some very sound uh, teachings which the Talmud has about what it takes in terms of individual qualities to help a community get through a crisis. In terms of leadership and, uh, and public policy, uh, I want to look at this very interesting, uh, very interesting source, which is, um, let me see, uh, source five uh, on your sheets, uh, from Masechet Tani 20b. So we're in the middle of a discussion about you know, what if they're, you know, they're, you're in a place where there's rickety walls or dilapidated houses in your neighborhood with a tendency to fall on people, right? <laughs> and well, that's clearly a clear and present danger for the community. And I think rickety walls here, uh, uh, you know, they're talking about rickety walls in particular, but also I think it's also a metaphor for other kinds of threats too. So, uh, so the Gemara relates another incident, source five. Rav Huna, remember we saw him yesterday, had a certain quantity of wine in a certain dilapidated house and he wanted to move it. But he was afraid the building would collapse when he went in. So he brought Rav Adaba Ahava there to the, and he dragged out a discussion with him about the matter of halacha until they took out all the wine. Now, the point here is that Rav Adaba Ahava was a noted miracle worker and of extraordinary spiritual merits. And so you could be sure that if Rav Ahava was there, the house would not fall down. Whereas Rav Huna, on the other hand, was a leader of a very different kind, of a very practical 
pragmatic, this worldly kind of perspective. Uh, and so, so he schleps Rav Adabahava there, has him talk until the, and drags out a discussion until they'd taken out Rav Huna's wife. When they exited, the building collapsed. <laughs> Rav Adabahava's gone, the building collapses, and Rav Adabahava realizes what, hey, what's happened, and he gets angry. He's been used. So the Gemara explains Rav Adabahava holds in accordance with this statement. As Rav Yanai says, a person should never stand in a place of danger and say a miracle will be formed for me and I will escape unharmed, lest a miracle will not be performed for him. So what you have here is really interesting. You have, you have two different models of, of leadership in the face of danger. We have Huna, who's the practical guy, as we'll see, as we'll see, uh, but who recognizes the power of Rav Adabahava, who's a spiritual guy and who would never have a, 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 a wall, a, a wickety wall fall down on top of him. And Rav Adabahava, on the other hand, he knows his power, but he doesn't want to use it. And because there's this idea, you shouldn't rely on a miracle, right? If you can, get out of a situation without, you know, using or perhaps using up, you know, your spiritual merits, then much better to do, you know, to take the real world solution. So they both recognize that there's power and also limitations in their respective approaches. So then we have, then we have uh, short spiritual biographies of both of these, both of these guys. I shouldn't say guys, both of these great rabbis. What were the exceptional de deeds of Rav Adabar Ahava? So well, then goes, and we'll just go through this quickly. Rav Adabar Ahava, what was, you know, what was so special about him? He didn't get angry with his household. He never walked before people greater than himself. He didn't think about matters of Torah in filthy places. He never went around without this Torah to fill in. In, in short, if, I, if you had to sum him up, you'd say that he always acted with a sense of reverence to the holiness in that which was around him, a great sensitivity to holiness in other people, in the Torah and in his surroundings. And that's how he merited this spiritual power. What about Rav Huna, on the other hand, uh, is the beginning of what's page four in the sources. Rav said to Rav Bar Papa, tell us some of the fine things that Rav Huna performed. He said, I don't remember what he did in his youth, but the deeds of his old age, I remember. So every cloudy day, they would take him out with Huna in a golden carriage. He was, lived in some dignity and he would survey the whole city and he would command that every unstable wall be turned down, lest it fall in the rain and hurt somebody. And if its owner was able to re rebuild another, Rav Huna would instruct him to rebuild it. And if he was unable to rebuild it, Rav Huna would build it himself with his own money. So it's a very different approach to rickety walls. Now, Rav Ahaba Adava is so spiritual that a wall would never fall on him. Rav Ahuna goes around and if the wall needs fixing, then fix the damn wall. That's, that's, that's his approach. And if the owner of the wall doesn't have the money, then Rav Huna would give him the money to build it, just to make sure that, um, that, that this societal problem, this danger is dealt with, and it's dealt with you know, rationally and based on you know, the presumably 
you know, good building and engineering. And, and if the, somebody doesn't have the money to do it themselves, then Ralph Hunter took responsibility that everybody, rich and poor, was able to take care of and avert this danger around them. And, and, and then it's a whole list of other things that Ralph Hunter did, but this one is particularly interesting, I think. Another custom of Ralph Hunter was that when he had a new medicine, he would fill a water jug with the medicine and hang it from the, uh, uh, from the doorpost of his house, saying, all who need, let him come and take from his, this new medicine. Which, and I think there's no other word for that than socialized medicine. Uh, you know, the model of the NHS, and I want to uh, welcome and applaud any of the uh, NHS, National Health Service, frontline COVID workers who have taken the time to join us in this call. It's good to have you here. So that's, I think, that's very briefly three models of, of how the people, of how Talmud's the views resilience of communities, which, which apply to, to plague and apply to climate crisis and apply to other things as well. And I've, you know, I've, I've, I've gone through this quite quickly because, you know, I said it, I said on, 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 on Monday, you know, I don't really want to take time to say that the Talmud knows about things that we also know about. And I think we can see these are, you know, good sound principles of response to crisis, but perhaps I think the uniqueness of the Talmud, what the, of the Talmud's response is the way that it actually weaves together these different levels of response, the spiritual, the individual, and the public policy weaves them together and says all these different levels and media of response are all critical for a resilient society. And I think that's something that we don't have. You know, different people, different groups, different political parties will latch onto one or other of these pieces. But I think the interwovenness is something special that the Talmud is teaching us. So I want now to move on to the question of interconnectedness. Now, the most important climate change lesson that I think that COVID has to teach us is about interconnectedness. Climate change is above all, I would say, a problem of interconnectedness. All life on earth participates in the planet's climate systems. That was the insight James Lovelock propounded in his Gaia hypothesis, and it's been confirmed as now called the Gaia theory. It's a core of eco ecological science, as E.O. Wilson, widely thought of as the greatest living biologist, marvels, the fate of every species is determined by the diverse actions of scores of other species that variously photosynthesize, browse, graze, decompose, hunt, fall prey, and turn soil around the species. You can't understand the life of any species without the life of myriad species around it. Or as John Muir, the pioneer of American environmentalism, pithily put it, if we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. And of course, it's something that's well known to mystics and seekers of all traditions. You can find this knowledge in the Sufi Muslim mystical tradition. It suffuses every line of the lyrics of Rumi, who lived in Anatolia in the 13th century and poured out ecstatic verses celebrating our interconnectedness with nature. No sound of hair clapping comes forth from one hand without the other hand. Every particle in the universe desires its mate, just like amber and the blade of straw. In the interest of time, I won't quote more of that. And as I've tried to show that this, this vision of interconnectedness is also at the heart of Tanit, with its vision of how human words, thoughts, and deeds are interwoven with the fabric of the natural world. But here's the thing, you know, it's in, it's in ecology, it's in mysticism, 
But this fact of interconnectedness is still very, very hard for us to get our heads around. And it makes the challenge of climate change feel so overwhelming and challenging. It challenges our everyday concepts about causation and responsibility and agency. You know, we intuitively, I think, understand the solid body physics of how a carelessly driven car can flan pedestrians. And therefore it's our responsibility to drive carefully. And it's fair to hold someone liable if they knock someone else down at a, cross at a crossing. However, the connections between you know, the SUV that someone buys in Boston and flood floods in Bangladesh challenge our ordinary views about moral agency and responsibility, not to mention about physics. But the atmospheric physics of how careless driving of that kind can contribute infinitesimally to damage somewhere else in the world is beyond most of our scientific ken and it's beyond our frames of conceptual reference. You know, th so this collision, I think, between the emerging knowledge of global interconnectedness and our everyday ways of thinking and acting actually tends to provoke dissonance and denial and despair. Right? You know, dissonance is the sense of outlandish and incredible incongruity, but what between what climate science tells us is and what we previously thought. And denial and despair and its flip side apathy, apathy are you know, reactions, very normal human reactions which follow on that. So to my mind, this is perhaps the most important thing that the coronavirus pandemic can teach us. Like climate change, COVID is a problem enabled by interconnectedness. Our tight global connections have helped the virus to spread. The density of urban populations increase the number of people each of us may affect while international air travel between big cities multiplies the distance pandemics can go, reducing the degrees of separation. With COVID, through my carelessness, I could sicken and even indirectly kill people far away that I will never meet. Like in climate change, these channels of interconnection are likewise invisible and imperceptible, revealed in this case by microbiology rather than atmospheric physics. And it's also counterintuitive. It's outside our normal experience that if I go to a public place without a mask, because of interconnectedness, I can kill somebody who I don't know. You know, none of us, I think, would go into that person's house, go walk up the stairs and smother them to death in bed with a pillow. But causing them to die from, uh, from COVID-caused asphyxiation by our carelessness is actually possible. It's a hard lesson, but slowly we're learning it, or at least many of us are. Like climate, the epidemic is enabled by our interconnectedness and it becomes solvable or at least more manageable when we recognize and act on that, on that interconnectedness. Now, when I put on this 25 agarot piece of paper and plastic here, I'm understanding that when I emit, emit what I emit into the air, germs in this case, can I harm people anywhere in the world. So maybe this experience of the global interconnectedness with COVID can help us better understand the non-intuitive webs of interconnection at work in causation involved in climate change. But I wanna actually dwell for a moment on something which I think is less obvious to people. And that is this. Climate change is an expression, a manifestation of interconnectedness. But it's also a symptom of things that we need to change in our lives, which I think are precisely about restoring that sense of interconnectedness with the sources of life that sustain us. If we look at what we need to change in food or transportation or energy, I think we start to realize that restoring connectedness to the world is part of it. For example, if we look at food. We're realizing that meat raised in industrial farming conditions is a major source of methane and carbon that cause climate change. 
And that these conditions are those that enable us to raise large quantities of cheap meat, but also erases our connection of the connection, awareness of the connection between meat and dead animals and our interconnection with the creatures that we eat. Yeah, and I, I, I want to briefly mention, you know, the transformative experience I had with Chazon about 10 years ago, which made me understand that. Uh, you know, it was about one of the, uh, one of the, one of the uh, food conferences. And before the conference started, we went down to this organic farm in San Francisco. It's called Wind Dancer Farm, I think. And we all of us, well, the ones who decided to take part, participated in slaughtering and plucking and eviscerating and packing up the turkeys, which we were then going to eat for Shabbat Friday night dinner. So did I eat the turkey? Well, yes, I did. You know, I, I sometimes do eat meat and it didn't seem, well, I do actually eat meat. I try to eat less, less than I did before. But it didn't seem to make any sense not to, not to eat this very you know, eco-friendly meat. But when I, I took my first bite and I shuddered involuntarily because the mental machitzas that we erect between meat and dead animals were ripped away. As I, I remembered and recalled and then repressed and then recalled and then repressed the images of that wet Wednesday morning when I'd been involved in shechting the, uh, the, the, the meat. And then, you know, saying, saying benching on that meal was a totally different experience. You know, normally you just say thanks for the food on the plate. You don't really know where it came from. This time I knew exactly where it came from. And so found I was thanking God, not for the food, but also for the farm and the farmers who I'd met who'd helped read it, who'd helped raise it, and the wet, muddy ground and those proud, dignified birds pecking in the dirt, and the wind and the rain and everything that I was connected to through that one act of eating. You know, now, of course, you know, it's impractical for people to, you know, to raise meat on a large scale in that way, but I think that's part of the point. Part of the point is if you had that kind of experience, probably leads you, and I think it has led me to eat meat on a smaller scale, if you had that experience of connectedness to actually what, what's it really about. Now the same, the same holds true for energy, and I think this is less well understood. And um, guided by my experience yesterday, I, I, I'm, gonna, yeah, I'm gonna take the time next five or seven minutes to finish up what I was gonna say, and I'll leave more time to, uh, for questions tomorrow. So everybody knows, I think, that the biggest thing that we need to do to mitigate climate change is to stop making power from fossil fuels and to generate more from renewable sources, wind, solar, etc. And I think that people tend to think of this as a technical engineering fix, that because fossil fuels happen to have this unfortunate property that they emit CO2, while renewables don't. That's why we have to do this. And, but I want to say that it's actually not a technical thing at all. That rather how we choose to capture and utilize sun energy, whether it's a one billion year old fossil fuels or whether it's the flow from sun and wind today, actually has profound ecological, geopolitical and spiritual consequences. That there's actually a connection between the content of the fuel we use and the quality of the lives we lead. To show you that, and well, let me tell you the little known story of how the global solar energy actually, energy actually began. People don't know this, it may, and I think, it's, I think it's relevant, and it will take us back to interconnectedness and to turn it. Now, it's fair to say that the solar energy industry was founded by Mr. Arnold Goldman, an American-Israeli inventor, an entrepreneur who founded the Luz Solar Corporation in Israel in 1980. Um, 
let me show you a little picture here of uh, of Arnold. Here you go. This is uh, this is Arnold Zichonol Brachai. He passed away uh, three years ago. Now, the um, now Lewis was founded in 1980, and it was the first commercially successful uh, solar plant. And by 1991, uh, Luz was actually generating 90% of all the energy, solar energy on the planet. And that's more than a historical curiosity, it's really important because when 15 years later, people start thinking about climate change and renewables, the Luz plants, which were still going in California, were the only proof of, con of concept that it was actually possible to, uh, to, to generate renewables in a cost-effective way and on a large scale. So this is how Luz actually began. Arnold Goldman moved to Israel with his family in 1979 with the intention of founding not a solar company, but a utopian community or an intentional community, if you like, in Chazon language, to be called Project Luz. Uh, Goldman set out his vision for his community in a 1979 book that he wrote called A Working Paper for Project Luz. And, and this is it, right? There's probably only about 15 copies of this around in the world today, published in 1979 in 1979. Uh, you know, typeset, haven't seen that for a while. And in it, Goldman, who was uh, quite a profound scholar of, of Judaism and Kabbalah, posited a, a vision of our interconnectedness with existence in which human beings are co-partners in the evolution of creation. Our old role is to be partners in the unfolding journey towards perfection. In Goldman's words, right, the universe is dynamic and it's a process of completing its creation and we are active agents in this achievement of, the, uh, of this process. But, as he put it, the technologies which we use obscure this central fact of human connectedness with existence. As Goldman put it, it's hard to see our role because this difficulty stems from the, not from the subtlety of the relationship between our acts and the creative processes of the universe, but from the strange way we have of isolating our handiwork from its overall organic context. So, Goldman dreamed of this ideal community called Luz, where everything that happened, homes, businesses, schools, communities, would enable people to have this experience of interconnectedness with the world. Now, energy was an area in which he thought that humans were particularly cut off from this appreciation of interconnectedness and natural processes. Yeah, and if you think of how energy gets it, you couldn't, I really couldn't imagine a design which cuts us off more from the sense of connectedness with the source of the energy. You think about it, you, know, you flick a switch and you access electricity, which has traveled thousands of, the mile, of miles in wires from a generating plant, powered by a fuel which has traveled hundreds or perhaps thousands of miles to get there. And the fuel was dug out of the ground and was originally sun energy a billion years ago. You cannot imagine a better, a more effective way of cutting us off from our awareness of the original source of our energy, of our sense of interconnectedness with the ultimate source of energy. Goldman thought that solar could overcome this alienation from the source, right? And that if, if you got your energy from solar powers and panels in every house, you could see at a glance the causal connection between sunlight coming down and the energy being produced for its use. So he imagined that the loose community's industry would be solar powered. It will be powered by, powered by solar. So in the end, the, the loose community was never built. 
Uh, he uh, Goldman couldn't raise money for that. But it was 1980, and he found the, uh, the second oil price spike, and he found he could raise money for a, a solar company. So a couple of the people he went to invested, and solar the uh, um, and the uh, the Luz industry was born. So why am I telling you the story? Because I think it's really important to know that the solar industry, which is now you know the big hope for tackling climate change, was born out of a passionate conviction coming from Jewish thinking that solar was the energy source that could best restore our awareness of interconnectedness with the source of all life, and interdependence with interdependence with creation. And as, as, as Arnold saw it, there, there are, there's profound spiritual and socioeconomic differences between fossil fuels and, and, and renewables, right? It's not just that the renewables uh, don't cause climate change, but also as he saw it, and I think it's true, there's something inherently, inherently tending towards inequality about fossil fuels, because the very fact is that if you sit on a land which has the stuff underneath, all you have to do, broadly speaking, is dig a hole in the, dig a hole in the, in the ground, haul up the stuff, and whoever owns that ground is rich and can get everybody else to work for them. And, and then the other problem is that fossil fuels have an inordinate tendency to be located under the land of, of regimes who are hostile to the nations that are their main customers. So this awkward fact of political geology is a recipe for war and, 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 uh, and instability. So as Goldman saw it, you know, there's a basic question. Do we get our energy from fossil, uh, from sunlight, energy from fossil, or from flow? Either way, it comes from the sun. But how we choose to capture that has big, big economic, ecological, geopolitical, and spiritual consequences for the world. And remarkably enough, I think that Talmud Tanya actually understood this pretty well. The second to last source on your page is a quote from the Talmud Yerushalmi. It says, Rabbi Hanan from Sapori said, in the name of Rabbi Shmuel Ben Nachman, because of four things, the Holy One, blessed be he, changed his mind, and decided that the land of Israel would drink only from above, and not from rivers. That's what we were talking about, said yesterday, that in the land of Israel, unlike the neighbors, the rain came from the heavens and not from the earth. Because of the strong, and because of this tendency that if, if, if the mighty can control the ground waters, then, then they become stronger. In order to disperse bad vapors, <coughs> so that high up people and the lowly should drink alike, and so that all would turn their eyes to the heavens. This, this, this Yushami in Tanit is saying that there are spiritual, socioeconomic, and even environmental consequences to whether your key resource, your water, in this case, comes from the heavens and from the earth. In terms of social inequality, abuse of power, arrogance, even polluted air. And you know, if you substitute energy or oil for water, then I think this very much prefigures Goldman's analysis. Or as the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman put it, in his, uh, in his book about global warming, um, hot, flat and crowded, he says, our addiction to oil makes global warming warmer, petrodictators uh, stronger, clean air dirtier, poor people poorer, democratic states weaker and violent terrorists richer. Have I left anything out? Well, yes, actually. 
Uh, it's a pretty good list, but it covers almost everything in the Ushami, but Friedman has left out the difference that the Ushami calls so that all would turn our eyes to heaven. The spiritual difference between resources that flow from the sky that cause us to raise our eyes and our hearts gratefully to heaven and resources found in the earth that reinforce our in inclination to believe that the sources of our wealth are eternally and reliably under human control. So in conclusion, I want to say some of the lessons about climate and COVID seen through the lens of Tane are, number one, what makes a, a society that's resilient to crises, and that breaks down to, into prayer, faith and connection to God, individual acts of care and generosity, leadership and public policy that's grounded in empirical reality and takes responsibility for the whole of the society. And also that the hardest thing about climate change is interconnectedness. And one of the lessons that COVID is teaching us the very, very hard way, but which might just help with the climate. And finally, that the solutions to climate are also, oddly enough, tend to be ones that restore our sense of interconnectedness with the sources of life and also with the source of all life. So, Lachaim. So I, I, I took a bit more time, but I wanted to finish and I'll make it up to you tomorrow. Um, so any questions in the time that's left? Yes, and, and I want to say a big thank you to you. And I think we'll literally take one question now. We ran a little bit longer today because we began, as it were, with questions from yesterday. And tomorrow we'll have longer Q&A. I can't actually see everybody, but Hannah, will you call on somebody to give to, away to do a question? Happy to. Does anybody have anything they want to lift up in these last couple moments? Well, it looks so, like we're all we're all ruminating. Oh, so sorry. Does somebody have a question? Well, I was I, I was going to say I, I think that we're at time. Um, Liana has put into the link um, tomorrow, which is the last in the series, is also within a day of learning for the Chazon Seal of Sustainability, which itself and its evolution is in one sense a fractal element of this lecture series, because one of the things I want to leave everybody to think about, as it were, as we go from digesting today to tomorrow, is that the people who have physically joined these talks are to some extent a small and self-selected group. We are, by and large, people, people who care about all of these issues. We're deeply, deeply, deeply concerned about the world right now and what is going on and where we are going. We're deeply involved in Jewish community and Jewish tradition. We are striving, I think truthfully, all of us in different ways, to figure out how to put those pieces together with maximum impact. And part of what is going on here is not only a deepening of the devious thinking, which is here to help all of us, frankly, and to move all of us forwards, but also a sense that everything that we have all learned and done thus far, however good it may have been, however impactful it may have been, is insufficient. And the question for us individually, and for us as leaders, and for the Jewish community, the world is what do we do with everything we have learned in these last years and how do we make a bigger difference in this next 10 or 15 years so i want to leave that with all of us as a sort of homework question and as something that we will pick up tomorrow in the q a um, and also you're warmly invited to join us for any of the other sustainability sessions we have a good lineup and leanne has there. For now, my dear Mr. 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 Mr
a huge thank you to Liana and Hannah. Thank you to all of you for being here. And a big, big thank you, Rabbi Yudhiyu Sinclair, to you. Thank you. Thank you, Nathan.